0: Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknisum. Chris, how are you doing this evening?
1: David, I'm doing I'm doing better now. The wind has died down and I'm out walking in my beautiful desert mountain area and uh, I managed to see a, a really substantial uh, lizard, just a desert runner. Just I shouldn't say that, but not like a chuckwalla or a Gila monster or something. But quite beautifully patterned and uh, and very uh, sturdy. Uh, I wouldn't say fat, but I would say uh, well fed and uh, stout. I got to actually really engage for a few minutes, which uh, as, as people who, who try to you know observe lizards. Uh, no, is is a, is a trick. Uh, you have to be pretty still and pretty uh, relaxed, and it, it also, obviously, at some point, takes some kind of trust on the part of the reptile. Um, so it was quite beautiful to see this uh, denizen, uh, and and to look at the or to try to imagine at least what the perspective uh, that he brings to it. I'm fairly certain it's a male. I I, I sent a photo to a herpetologist friend who assures me that the size would indicate a male. Uh, but, you know, a beautiful long tail. What what would it mean to have a tail? What would it be, mean to have as much tail as body, you know? Um, but just another perspective um, to take me out of my, my mind, my new homeowning uh, worries, and to kind of really connect with the land and the environment here in that that way that is uh, I don't know just it's very soul fulfilling you realize that that the human perspective and you, and most important your own personal perspective uh, that there's some relief from that if if you let the world speak to you so that that's kind of the mood this evening
0: that's a- is so interesting because i was playing with my mother-in-law's dog the other day and i had the passing thought of what it would be like to have a tail because her tail was just going right and she'd kind of lay on the floor and just slam it into the ground and i thought that's got to be so interesting to have this thing that completely shows your hand <laughs> yes yes
1: Yes. It it, it <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, I, I, I'm firmly of the view that the pe- that breeds that that are you know have the tails docked, I, I just have never gotten with that program at all. It seems cruel, uh unnecessary, and it's such a vital part of the dog's uh communication uh yeah, exactly. mechanisms, you know, not to mention balance and, and a few other things. But I don't know. Do they have phantom tail pain? Or or you know, the dogs who've I'm sure they do. Yeah, you'd think so. I mean here it is connected with the spinal cord and it's a very deep idea, Tails. Uh very deep. Uh it it's it's hard to imagine that kind of expressiveness that, that you know, and then to not have it in it in, in, for it to be native to you. Um, that's interesting that you had that view. How's the, have the move? How is that all working or worked?
0: The move's going great. It's over. All of our stuff is now located in our new home. I'm, as I said last time, I'm getting used to actually having to walk a bit to get to the refrigerator from my room. That's an interesting new development, developing new psychic pathways through the house. Trying to develop good habits as I'm doing that. Um,
1: wow, I I really I, connect with that.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you spend so much time where you're at, especially if you're a writer or an artist or a photographer. If you have a studio in your home, you spend most of your, you know, waking life inside of it, whether you're working or just kind of hanging out and reading a book. So I think it's vitally important to create positive feedback loops. Um, I think that this week I am the most exhausted (laughs) that I've been since Gus was born. Um, It's been, you know, there have been some challenges. There have been some surprise weddings in the family, a, a lot of driving around the state of Oklahoma to get to places on time, and driving in pretty nasty, windy thunderstorms. Uh, you know, which I'm not a huge fan of driving in, but I do it. Um, but it's been a good week overall. We just took my niece and nephew this afternoon to an escape room, which we made it out of with 20 seconds to spare. Good. Um, um, and uh, oh, uh, my first novel. By the time we leave here, we'll be friends. Uh, I've received an email that it's going to be translated uh, into Swedish by a pretty cool publisher over there their uh their catalog is currently consists of harry cruz books and donald ray pollock books so it'll <laughs> it'll fit in in tone if not content well, So congratulations
1: uh, that's outstanding that's outstanding thanks I,
0: you know how this kind of thing works where you know they sent me the email this morning and then they sent the the contract over and i was looking at our emailing history back and forth and they had emailed me initially um the day after Gus was born, so almost a year ago. And they said, hey, you know, we're interested in, in doing this. And I said, okay, that's great. Just let me know what the next steps are. And they said, okay, we'll get in touch when everything's ready. And I completely forgot about it. As you do, once you've been a writer long enough, you sort of file these things away. Uh, and so when they hit me up this morning, it was a pleasant little surprise. I said, oh, right. Yeah, well... Go right ahead. They want to get the book out by June. Apparently, there's a big music festival in Stockholm that they want to bring 400 copies to to push pretty hard. So excellent. Fingers crossed.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. Oh, well, it's exciting. I, I I admired that book. I really uh, I thought that was a very interesting uh, you know debut. Um, it it I don't know. Have you uh, changed your thoughts about that over time
0: no i love that book i did exactly what i wanted to do with it and in fact i am because i did a little thing on social media where without you know saying too much i just kind of posted the book and said hey this one's back on the table i said the little debut that keeps on giving uh check it out if you haven't and it just kind of for me at least, the, the tweet sort of blew up and people thought, well, huh, this looks very interesting. I'll have to check this out. And it was getting all this love and praise from people who'd read it. And, you know, and I thought, I need to go back to this particular style because after that first book, you know, I followed it up with other books that I'm also very proud of, but that aren't quite in that same register as that first
1: book. No, certainly Um, not. I wouldn't say at all. No. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I'm, you know, this book that I'm working on currently, it's still in an early enough stage that it could tonally go in several different directions. And I think I'm going to attempt to tap into that 2010 spirit a bit more. And because maybe that's more my niche and I've done about a decade of exploring, um, other tones and genres and lengths of book and I think that might be my uh my home there. So we'll see. Good
1: good for you. Yeah, we'll sort of return to this, coda if, in a sense that way. Turn yeah, to base I, camp.
0: I had this yeah, I had this really good idea for a book that's set in a similar in the tundra, in the Siberian tundra, because I watched a documentary about Tuskers in Siberia, which are these indigenous guys who dig up mammoth tusks for Chinese businessmen because it's a, you know, it's a status symbol for them to have these kind of ornately carved mammoth tusks. And I thought it would be cool to take the same kind of surreal, cold, dark vibe and have a kind of uh, revenant type thing where, you know, two upstart tuskers are out with their mentor and a kind of, you know, uh, the one of them is the villain and he in a in a fit of drunken rage uh decides to murder both of them but only is able to murder the mentor causing the protagonist to set off across the tundra dragging an enormous mammoth tusk behind him while the, <laughs> love the bad guys in hot pursuit i just thought that would be like a, that would be a cool story you know
1: i love it um, i think that's fantastic interesting with I mean, uh you know, a, a return of focus to, uh, well, not necessarily to uh, any tundra, but you know, the whole Russian Siberian sort of frame. I wonder uh, if that might, you know, have slipped back into your mind at least, you know, subconsciously. Uh,
0: oh yeah, I think so. I think that that was a big, that was a big part of it, and I think that might be why people have a renewed interest in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes um, good considering sense. That makes good sense. All this, all the stuff that's going on. But enough about me. What would you like to talk about
1: today? Well, uh, again, we'll remind people that you've been given five words to choose two. Do you want to tell us what mm-hmm. uh, report on last week, and we'll uh, see make how sure. well you did. I, 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 I heard it. Um, I think. I think you. Let's see. Let me make sure
0: I have the right. The right words here. I believe I did brandish. Yes. And notary was it note?
1: Yes, it was. Oh my goodness! Yes, Which okay. Which was kind of a difficult. I, I remember point. that correctly. Well, you've got a strange yes. selection this time. Um, I was trying to mm-hmm. mix it up for you, and uh, you have a, a an imaginative challenge. Uh, this week that I think has great uh, potential practical utility. Uh, you ready for it? Hit me. Okay. Well, I'm going to frame it this way. I'm going to uh, send you into uh, a squirrely environment of a third grade class. So I want you to be thinking in terms of an eighth class. You know, eight-year-old point of view of, of the world uh, to come up with an activity for them. And the the educational uh, direction here, the learning outcome, is I, I think relevant to people of all ages. I think everyone is familiar with the idea of a zero-sum game and In fact, I think when we look at most games and most uh, rhetorical conflicts, when we look at social politics today, when we look really at any kind of uh, combative or competitive frame, I think we often run into a zero-sum situation. Oftentimes, uh, various individuals and sides try to claim it's not a zero-sum situation, uh, and we have many, many examples uh, where an ideological position will go, well, no, we're not really arguing against other people. We're we're arguing, you know, it'll benefit everyone. Well, it doesn't often turn out to be the case. I think that more often than not, when we look at... Uh, contemporary society, we see a series of of zero-sum games and oftentimes uh, an insincerity about their presentation. But I want you to think positively and present to our group of squirrely, uh, inquisitive uh, eight-year-olds the notion of the opposite of a zero-sum game or activity which is often in cliched terms referred to as a win-win situation. I've noticed in researching this proposition that there are very few good, solid examples of win-win situations that can be systematized in some way. There, you can find certain situations, for instance, a relationship you know, perhaps a marriage or a business partnership is win-win. You can you can come up with those sorts of scenarios. But I want you to do a little bit more systemic sort of thinking and come up with an activity that will explain to our eight-year-olds, our third graders, what the opposite of, of zero-sum might mean in a way that they can really understand as an activity, as a, a sort of a game or a goal. Uh, you mentioned that you've might uh, be just, or that you'd been in an escape room situation. Any kind of activity you want to set up, you've got free reign within this class. But the goal is to present uh, the opposite of a zero sum situation where a competition may mean more uh, cooperation, but real cooperation, not. And real benefit for everybody, not the kind of scenarios that we often see presented as win-win. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Good. I think that's a good challenge. I, I think to be uh, to that's be sincere in the difficult. win. Uh, well, it is. It is absolutely. I mean,
0: I normally have a. I normally have a, a. As soon as you're done speaking, I normally have a, a kind of a starting point, and. Um, Nope, there it is. I do have a starting point. I was gonna say I didn't have one, but it's it's tough. It's tough. It is tough. I, I won't. Uh, I won't try to uh, delay or give myself some extra time. Yeah, so yeah. I've got. You, you, it. I'm okay. good. good. Good to go.
1: Okay. All right. Well, we look forward to hearing that at the end. Uh, okay. So now you asked about. Well, I, I do have an idea of of, of what we. Um, Should talk about this episode, and it might be kind of um, a way to lead into uh, some future uh, episodes as well. Because I don't think we'll we'll bowl it over completely. Uh, I I would doubt very seriously if we do. But uh, what's been on my mind is that we've we've uh, positioned this first segment of the show lately as kind of the week in dissonance, and. I have been personally feeling, and I think you might feel the same, and I think a lot of people would share this view, that there's just so much dissonance, so much conflict, so much noise versus signal that uh, we may need to take something of a break in that. And I, I thought one way to do that would be to remind ourselves and our listeners that the opposite, of, of dissonance that we've we've used the term coherence and that it might be time again to revisit dissonance from a more positive angle of of what coherence might mean and examples of, of coherence and one that came to my mind that i'm i'm very confident exists but i'm curious to explore with you is uh, a kind of unaccountable coherence in in our uh, worldviews, as in yours and mine, despite mm-hmm. a pretty significant age difference, generational factors, geographical factors, a whole range of things. And there have been, at many points in the series so far, this is our 81st episode, if people are counting... Uh, where things have come forward that, that have surprised me, that, that I've heard you uh, put forward not just individual ideas, but deep underlying structural values and frames and grammars of, of, of process of the world that really resonate with me. And I'm very conscious that those connections, that that kind of coherence... Is disappearing on a very broad uh, societal and, and cultural scale uh, mm-hmm. I see that with uh, my students over the last 10 years they're going micro generational. the two and three years difference in age kind of blows out you know a lot of, of connections right and yeah. it, it's been startling to me um, and I I actually thought about this last night going out for my final walk, that the connections and resonances that you and I have might not be around, at least in America, ever again across the years that that divide our ages. And I wanted to pitch that to you. I I certainly have some uh, notes that I've made down through the episodes about where... Um, there were particular connections. But I I think it would be good maybe to start with a general response from your part of of if we had sort of the working title idea to make this clear of hands across the years, what does Mm -hmm. that idea mean to you? Does that, in fact, resonate with you?
0: It does resonate. I think that if I were to poke at what you and I have in common when it comes to ideas of coherence. It is a fascination with and a respect for things that have come before us. And I don't mean that ha- things that happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean things that happened 10 years ago. I mean... A sense of deep history and time and social development, um, understanding that things change and mix and create these kind of soups out of which new things rise, but having a general uh, sort of respect for different types of ancient indigenous and western uh knowledge systems and i think that to start off because this is a broad topic but to start off <clears throat> i think that we could point to the fact that you and i are simply creatures that are not born anew every day <laughs> you know what i mean as soon as I. As soon as our eyes open, we're like newborn babies ready to receive whatever marching orders have come down the line from whatever priest cast, you know, dead eyed space alien lizard person is on the television at the time. So I think that I think that our relationship and the areas where we tend to find ourselves agreeing, I, I have a sense that that would have been much more common before the present moment. Um, And I should say, I should say that that doesn't mean that, you know, every generation has always gotten along. There's, of course, the idea that, you know, the kids these days are not all right. You can go back to a newspaper in the 1880s and find a breathless article about, you know, kids doing xyz that would seem relatively tame by today's standards but that whipped everybody up into a frenzy back then but i think that your point about micro generations i have my niece and nephew visiting and i was asking them about current slang. i was uh, asking them to show me on their phones things that make them laugh things that that they're concerned and I just, I didn't have the reference point for hardly any of it. And I expected that. I expected there to not, I expected there to be a bit of a difference because I think that if you and I were talking about uh, cultural things like humor, uh, music, things like that, you and I would have very different, you know, sort of perspectives on that. But I guess I didn't expect it to be as pronounced as it actually was. I can usually find... The good in some things, um, but this was just it was kind of horrifying. I mean this is the first generation of children who grew up with these screens in front of them and it's it's kind of alarming to see but i don't I don't want to get too far off on a track like that i just i I think that there is a, a sense a literal timeline within my head of the way human history has broadly speaking worked, and the way that Communities and tribes have functioned within that timeline. And I think that this constant, what I would call an archonic perversion of the Buddhist present, right? Of the be here now idea uh, is what separates people like us from from them. It's not ideology. It's not ideological differences, right? It's a sense of how to process different
1: ideologies and thoughts and ideas interesting well that's a very good opening response i think you you've done the the very uh big canvas topic uh you know a, a good turn there in 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 introducing you know introducing it and 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 beginning uh, uh, I think what will uh be probably uh you know a multi-episode sort of discussion uh Mm-hmm. I have a couple of 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 thoughts in in um in response to that which uh one at one point in the the past we mentioned uh one of william james's uh and he's just such a beautiful explainer mm-hmm. and uh the, i think it was the cats in the library uh yep. do you remember that mm-hmm. that um I do, yeah. Cats and dogs. Cats and dogs, okay. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That, uh, that has stuck with me because I'm, I'm a huge uh, devoted reader of William James. I think that he uh, is the kind of humanist uh, presence still uh, that we need so, so much. His, his total body of writings was remarkable considering uh, he didn't really live anywhere near as long as we would have liked. But somewhere along the path, I was speaking about these issues with one of my better students and uh, trying to tease out some sort of perspective, you know, on, on why things are developing the way they are. And I'm not sure if the actual causal frame was was really revealed. It might have partially, my inference would be self-esteem. But the student who um, thought about this for a moment, uh, and this was at UNLV, and one of the most beautiful architectural buildings there is the library. Um, it's a fairly modern uh, university overall not really that well known for its its architecture really and the library is one of the few buildings that not only looks good from the outside but it's it's interesting and functional from the inside and and yet it's it is not the real mechanism the guts of the library like the kind of library that I experienced at at Dartmouth College which I also as a janitor I cleaned regularly so I had many different perspectives uh his answer was that, that the attitude of what he defined as his generation and he agreed that that's probably a much narrower time frame than i would use for for so-called my generation you know, he was thinking of maybe five years or like a high school period he could get with that you know freshmen through seniors which is already micro generational you know in my terms He said that the problem is you're overwhelmed with the past. You're overwhelmed with culture. You're overwhelmed with uh, adult perspective. And instead of just having your own thing, which is what young people, teenagers, you know, started doing really post-World War II, it, it, it... for many, it's become necessary to deny, to deny, and he used the expression "it's a way of eliminating a la- whole sections of the library." I just, hmm. you know, we just don't need like to that. think about yeah. that. Yeah. And um, and then when he sort of thought that that kind of sounded sort of horrific to me, I uh, said, "Well, think about going into a supermarket, and you really." what you really want to do is go into a convenience store because you can't deal with the big shopping and you're overwhelmed by all the stuff in the supermarket. So you, there's whole sections that you don't visit and, and you think, well, that's just not for me. And then you build up a framework and a philosophy that just says, well, I'm never going down that aisle. Well, it simplifies the visit, doesn't it? It makes it easier. And. Yeah. I I did like lo- what What do you think of that? It, it, it sounds kind of yeah. Uh, well, it sounds sort of pathetic and wimpy in a way, but it, I understand it. It all it also sounds human and and functionalist.
0: Yeah. yeah, it does strike me as wimpy. I get where he's coming from. I would recommend to people who think that way. I would recommend uh, Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Hugely because-
1: pop. I mean. A hugely popular book, hugely meaningful to me. I I think that both Persick's books are amongst my top 100. So there is a good example of resonance and coherence between us.
0: Right. And so the idea is being able to have a framework that is based in reality in this case, motorcycle maintenance, but it really could be anything. It could be a hobby. It could be, uh, you could be a plumber. So it could also be functional, right? But it is the act of making this concrete functional set of steps into a metaphor for how you approach different reality tunnels, right? For a lot of people, that's religion. I, I think that that might not be quite hands-on enough because it's, you know, it's important that it's hands-on, right? I think that I think that's the key of what I'm getting at here. If you wanted to strip it all the way back to the Zen practice of walking meditation or sweeping meditation, I think those are good frameworks. Because what I mean is, instead of confining yourself to one area of the grocery store and thinking, well, there's just too much out there and I'd have to take it all in. And and I'm, I'm not only being forced to accept their thoughts and their ideologies, but their own frames. If you bring your own frame based in tactile reality to these different parts of the grocery store, you have reference points that you yourself have constructed that can allow you to approach new tasks new thoughts and new problems
1: well that's a very empowering uh thought and i suppose that that you know the best of uh the emerging generations at the in their best moments might might try to do that uh, but i i do think that going back to your starting point that you and i be, began our, you know, semi-adult but but thinking curious lives, uh, fascinated with things that came before us, fascinated with uh, legacies, fascinated with with the notion of history, fascinated with things that were unfamiliar, uh, you know? And I think that's uh, one of the the core issues with, with the emerging generation is that Almost anything unfamiliar has a slight tinge of not hostility to it, but anxiety, anxiety, not joy, not, oh, my God, that's so cool. Uh, And I don't know where we lost that. I'm not sure where that disappeared or what the mechanisms uh, for that anxiety are. Do you have any speculations about that?
0: Now, in terms of anxiety, you're referring to the kind of overwhelming amount of of choices and ideologies being thrown at you?
1: Well, not so... I mean, I think that's kind of going back to the the supermarket library sort of idea. But I think Mm -hmm. the sense of being... What my student was trying to say was that the, the, the library... And then the more mundane example of the supermarket could be seen not as, as uh, variety and a smorgasbord of possibilities in a good sense, but it seemed alienating and uh, oh, overwhelming.
0: Okay. okay. Well, do you think that this might be a little bit goth and dark? But let's let's go. I tend to think that there needs to be an understanding of the limits of, of a human life because I think that these feelings of being overwhelmed by a library or a supermarket, for example, come from not having a, a clear direction to begin with right mm-hmm. if, if you're a consumer, if you've been raised your whole life to be someone who is shown, things preferably in the interest of being entertained, but sometimes educated, right? I think that, that that passivity is what can be overwhelming. I think we all know what it feels like to have two or three people at work all in your ear because they all three of them are bosses and they all three of them want something done that's different. But I mean, what he's really describing is that you know, is that he doesn't know, what direction he wants to take. I mean, a library is not overwhelming if you know what you're looking for. It's actually fun because then you're on a scavenger hunt, right? Like you're looking for the things that can uh, elucidate something that needs elucidating or discover something that needs discovering. And I think that ties back in a broader sense to really coming to terms, and we're really bad at this right now, coming to terms with dying you might think, well, that's like, that's a big leap, right? That's a huge leap from what we're talking about here. But I don't think so because I have a clear, clear in my head. I got, you know, on the outside of it, maybe 90, 100 years. If I'm lucky, my grandparents all died in their 70s. So who knows? But when you realize that finite amount of time, well, then you sit back and you take stock. What what do I want to spend my time learning about and maybe adding to. This might sound like a bit of a digression, but my wife No, 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 I don't th-
1: think it is at all. I think it's a very interesting and rich, deepened background for this discussion. No, I, I, I think it's... Uh, I think that's crucial. And I, I think it, it relates across ages because I think you're right. I think it's one of the, the fundamental aspects of existence that we really have lost touch with and have a great deal of trouble reconciling ourselves to you know?
0: Yeah I mean if you take some time and you you do the monastic life of reflection and asceticism, you don't have to make that your entire life but you know read the Desert Fathers and sit back and reflect on your own death for a bit because my wife's been listening to these podcasts. Uh, it's called ologies, and every week there's an interview with an expert on something. And one week there was an expert on crow death rituals. There's one where there was an expert on slugs. And listening to these podcasts in the background, while she listens to them, I'm struck by the fact that these scientists and otherwise, they made a decision. Somebody decided I'm going to be the expert on slugs in North America. And you might think, okay, well, maybe that's not for me. Slugs aren't really my thing, but it's the spirit of the choice, right? They said, yeah, I've got this many years, I'm gonna spend it investigating slugs. There's something very beautiful to that. And I would bet that if you sat down with those people, they'd have a pretty clear headed assessment of the time that they had on this earth and what they were doing with it.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Now I'm going to, uh, I'm going to respond in a way that will seem uh, coming in at a strange angle, but I, I I think it actually directly relates to what you've just been saying. Um, The, uh, my psychologist friend who I occasionally refer to, um, I I wish he, he and his wife moved to Denver. And so I'm, I'm, can only uh, sort of make contact via phone and, and via Zoom occasionally. But they've been enormously busy because of the stresses and strains of, of COVID and uh, are really just overwhelmed in, in their practices. But he's a very, very insightful person. And I love how he he presents ideas to me that um, I feel like I've been thinking about them, but I, I hear them in, in a different voice. And... He was talking along the lines of, of, of shopping and how he's noticed that people um, have a, had a very strange reaction when shelves were bare and, and supermarkets <clears throat> were much easier to navigate because there was a supply chain issue or things were you know bought out. And there was some real panic, you know, going back to the toilet paper issue at the start of COVID. Uh, and then he would talk to, to some of the older people about, you know, the days of going to specialist shops, like a butcher shop, rather than everything under one roof. And and mm-hmm. how those mm-hmm. days are are now gone. You know, we want everything under yeah. one roof. But he said that underlying a lot of this anxiety is we're told we need options. We're told we deserve variety. We're told we deserve things without any seasonal uh, restrictions you know i should be able to get fresh raspberries anytime you know or on and on and on but underlying maybe this anxiety this is his his thought and and i'm i'm just throwing it out here he said that underlying the, the the occasional anxieties about being overwhelmed by choices and so much product is a resentment of the need for variety. I mean, when you were talking about, well, libraries could be a great treasure hunt, you know, a great way to fulfill a curiosity or, you know, knowledge need. Why do libraries need to be big and not have only the book that you're looking for? Well, because other people are looking too. So that when we confront these big things like libraries and supermarkets and, of course, the whole online world, we run headlong into the realization that other people have needs and are looking for other things. And they're not validating our programs. They may be very, very different. And rather than... I mean, we, we, of course we feel that way when we're in traffic or we're in a crowd. We know that the world is, that there's mm-hmm. 7.8 billion people. We understand that in certain ways all the time. But his point is that sometimes it's the indirect evidence of that that really hits us the hardest. Uh, you know, I mean, have you ever been around a supermarket and you look at, you know, you look at in someone's cart and you go, you're buying that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I do that I and I you know and I make judgment. Mm-hmm. I don't of course say anything to people, but I go, uh, look, that woman is completely nuts. She may look okay. great, but I look I look at that cart and I go, Nope, that is all I need to know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. so we we confront not the possibilities of, of choices and Variety and customization, and and building your own burger, as I said, you know, not the the positiveness of options, but the the realization of other people, you know, other mm-hmm. the other people, the who are really other, you know, and you mm-hmm. think, oh my god, really, you know, and sometimes that may be more information than we can process. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it might be more information that we can process. Yeah, there's that is a big theme of what's going on with the internet, and it was put. It was stylized and put into, a, you know, an allegory in the work of H. P. Lovecraft. Seeing thing something that's just too big for your brain to be able to process, so you go crazy. Well, we decided to put that to the test in real life
1: and see. That's interesting. That. Uh, Lovecraft is an interesting reference point because there have been uh, several, you know, science fiction fantasy shows produced recently about things that you can't look at, creatures that just—if you see them—you'll go insane. Or, but. My my sense of Lovecraft, and I, I'm not. Um, I, I've really only read the very very famous uh, works. Um, although I did see a great documentary, which was out on Amazon Prime, which I recommend uh, about him. Um, my sense of, of, of his uh, horrors and and uh, was really the ancient ones. You know, the ancient evils, the, these dread mm-hmm. form. And it was really kind of the historicity or, or just the sheer endurance uh, off the radar of, of modern consciousness that, that gave that, you know, the world of, of uh, the ancient ones, their power, you know, mm. um, and, and their awfulness, you know, the awful uh, quality of them. Uh, not just simply the, Eldr- you know...
0: Eldritch.
1: Yes. The el- That's a beautiful word that he sort of... I don't think he invented that, but it's a lovely word and um, describes his his aesthetic so beautifully.
0: hmm I mean... Yeah, I think you're right. There is definitely that, you know, that terror from beyond the stars, things that have been sleeping for a while that have just woken up. And it connects at the same point, though, which is the insignificance of a single man's life, right? It's these things that are just too big for us to... Well, that really kind of put our, our, our lives in an insignificant light, which is something that we're really terrified of. And don't you think that's the, the supermarket or the library problem also? You're getting confronted By the fact that no matter how big your goals or your interests are in your own head you're a drop in a bucket which is something we could talk about right because i think that that's that nihilism is the beginning of something very beautiful if you keep following that thread i don't think it's as i don't think it's as depressing as it might initially seem
1: no, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I um, the the other perspective here, which um, is sort of my response to my psychologist, because I got thinking, well, is there another angle to this? And I wonder if this might be the way to bring things into perspective, because I absolutely agree with you. I think the the drop in the bucket, the tab in the ocean... Uh, might be an enormous sense of relief and peace and inspiration. And often That's how is. how I read it. You yeah. know? Yeah. Often is. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, and it can be very reaffirming, I think, when you um, if, when you look up at the stars. I'm, I'm now in an area where there is really exposure to, to starlight. Um, I'm on the other side mm. of the mountains from Vegas. And... Sure, you can feel like a speck of dust in the cosmos, but I I don't think that's psychologically what the intuitive response is. I think it is one of of tremendous beauty, and you could actually think of yourself as more important because, well, at least you're here, uh, you're amidst it all. Um, Dylan Thomas says that, you know, the fruit of man and wrinkles in the stars. Uh, So all of those things can kind of be repositioned but here's the the other aspect of the anxiety about you know whether it's variety or information overload or just there's so many the alienation of so many things that aren't familiar here's what i think is is haunting people and is particularly at work with the emerging generations gen z and and you know whatever I think there is an intuitive sense that there, there really is a structure and a grammar that organizes supermarkets and libraries and that works on multiple levels. You know, there are certain meals that go together well, certain, you know, there's an order to things. I think it's an implicit low-level constant fear that there really are rules and structures and grammars and everything isn't just the way you want it to be you know they've been mm-hmm. told well you know make it up for yourself everything is you know kind of you know reality ent- entirely subjective yeah but what if it's not you know yeah, right you know <laughs> That's the big
0: question. That is know, the big and, question. And
1: you you look you can whether it's gravity or death or the certain tastes in your mouth. You know it's very hard to to really get around those. And when you're told constantly by commercial uh, entities, by the media, you know, by your front, you know, when when the whole message is. You know, do your own thing, which has kind of been the larger, you know, that's kind of advertising cliche from the 60s. But that's kind of been the message for, you know, well over half a century now. Uh, Wow, what happens if that's just a complete lie? (laughs) Mm. Mm. That would make me paranoid and anxious too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What do, you, do you think that could possibly be what's going... That, that, you know, there's a sense that, yeah, there really is a structure. And maybe we could look at it in terms of, of traditions. This just came... This just popped into my mind. I've never written this piece up. But one of the most uh, telltale crossroads moment was when my uh, girlfriend, who turned into my first crazy wife and uh, a couple who were our friends from college we were all living uh, in the bay area so we'd left the the college nest and we were all in terrible apartments uh paying too much rent dealing with crime and everything was just a disaster it was a nightmare it was a total nightmare not a good way to start off adulthood but we got together for thanksgiving Trying to sort of have a nod to tradition and also trying to you know this was our first thing you know in our new bodies, our new lives and I don't remember what precipitated the whole thing, but in an, a an inno- it was it was just a fight the whole time, and we all ended up leaving. Throwing the food in, and just walking out and going in different directions. Not even as couples, mm. you know. It's mm. just a total disaster at simulating adulthood and a tradition because we just didn't get the rules right. We didn't. We were fumbling, playing at it. You know, it was okay. it was terrible. Does that have some resonance for you?
0: Yes. so the the thanksgiving so this whole thing falling apart actually could you tease that out a little bit more for me i'm i'm close to an idea here but okay. i just want to hear a little bit more
1: yeah well the trigger for me was thinking about this notion that that the 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 cause of uh, another side of the cause of of this cultural anxiety we're seeing And the fear of the library, the fear of the supermarket is not uh, information overload or too many options or too much variety. It's it's an intuition that there is an underlying structure that we don't understand, that there really is a way to process this. There is a way to navigate. There is a code an organizational system to a library, for instance, so you don't need to feel alienated, but you need to know what that system is. So there's this feeling that you can't just go in there and and make everything up and just find the book that you need and suddenly find yourself an adult and find yourself, find yourself, you know? No, it's not quite like that. You have to respect some traditions, some systems, some structures, some grammars. And it's that resentment of, of, well, it's not just anything I want it to be. That that yeah. is really driving the problem. That was where I got oh, to. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that connects directly to um, the, the, the passivity of the modern consumer, wanting everything sort of placed at your feet. There is a, an intense fear that people have of failure. And I think that that tends to manifest itself in a kind of misguided punk energy that, well, these rules are stupid. Yeah. So okay, well said. Them. Yep. And and you know, there's a time and a place for questioning mores and and rules and ritual, but I went to a a, a wedding on Monday. And when you have a wedding, you you got to do it. I teared up at the wedding even though the, the whole thing was a just a <laughs> fiasco. I I always do though because when I heard I love the that. preacher <laughs> when I heard the preacher talking about things like, you know, you two are going to be devoted to each other forever in sickness and in health, that is a culturally held idea, rule. Let's just call it a rule, right? Like let's not be afraid of the word rule that I think is I think is very beautiful. And I think that a lot of the psychic pain that many people feel these days is that they they feel like that rule doesn't apply to them. They want to have a family and have love, but they don't want to a- apply these these basic principles and rules that come along with that, right? Um so I think that rules and structure can be can be beautiful in their own way. I think we've had plenty of time to you know, to work these things out as it were. Um, but I wonder also about, you know, this idea of, you know, postmodernism, right, of of not wanting any one rule to be true all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? I wonder if that doesn't tie back into our conversation about Lovecraft and eldritch gods and things like that. Because if you follow rules, if you if you're looking at, say, the act of marriage, and you're realizing that there is a kind of natural need that human beings uh uh, have to be with each other and that need is fulfilled by following a specific rule set i wonder also if we're talking about sort of subliminal or sorry subliminal anxieties that that we're all feeling based around these rules-based systems i wonder if it's if we don't kind of subconsciously know that we're headed for major extinction event based on the way that we're going now. And so we just throw the whole thing out, right? Well, we don't. Rules are stupid. We don't need them anyway, because too much thought about cause and effect, and rules and their place within society and human beings. You think about that for too long, and you suddenly realize, oh, we're going down a bit of a dark path, aren't we?
1: I, you know, th- that leads to some really uh, important. Uh extensions that, that, that we could look at that, that, that completely takes us out of uh, our starting point of, of, of generational differences and connections between the two of us. Because I think that, that this notion of, of the shadow of extinction uh, is so powerful and so uh, pervasive and has been really since World War I. I think that's one of the, you know, think of uh, two art movements that I think are, you know, are related and very important to both of us, Dada and Surrealism. Uh, and I think they'd be an important part of many of our listeners, uh, cultural mindscape they are, was a joyfulness and a playfulness to those. And yet, they were directly in response to the dire challenge to sense uh, morality, tradition, structure, and ultimately hope that World War I and the emergence of the 20th century, you know, took hold of. Yeah. And I, I think that... It's kind of like Gallo's humor, in a, in a way. The, the humorous part of it, the playful side of it, which is what attracted me originally. Um, and I think you can see that in kind of the, the anarchy of, of the punk movement later. Uh, you know, there is a kind of uh, joy in rebellion. But on the other hand, it's very difficult to ignore uh, rock and roll emerging out of the shadow of the mushroom clouds, you know, which are still with us, you know And I, I, I think you're really right. I think that, that we have the, the shadows of extinction uh, may change form somewhat. You know We've gone from atomic warfare, nuclear warfare to maybe biological warfare or climate, you know uh, change driven. they you, know, they're, they're, you know, your choice of, of final cause, but the reaction is nonetheless the same. I think of of not being able to fully look that shadow in the face, and, and to maybe, f- have to have can't. a strategy. Well, how yeah, would you?
0: Well, it's it, indirectly. I think through these art forms. I think that's. I think you nailed it. That that's what they are doing. But the more and more we're talking about this, with our our goal being to a range of kind of coherence. I think at least for this first episode what we can say is that the first prescription is to wrestle with some of these big ideas death, extinction, getting old, uh the loss of everything, <clears throat> being tiny, being a small speck and being for the time that you are here in a sense actually inescapably confined by the rule set by which this life is governed (laughs) and grappling with those you know i mean you you really have sit with that for a while sit with that and grapple with that yes life is beautiful and nature is fantastic you'll never catch me uh going full black-hearted you know scandinavian black metal nihilist on you that's that's not my that's not my style but at the same time i think that um engaging with some of these art forms maybe, getting an indirect look at it, not staring at the sun, so to speak, right? But kind of immersing yourself in it. and, and uh, What I think that does is it's, it's by, a, by a process of, of sort of filling in the world around you, it, it, it makes you come out in contrast, right? like you start to form around these, around your, your understanding of, of what's around you.
1: Right. Okay. Well, look, I think that's a good uh, way to round things off. And I can complete this arc, I think, for, for this episode in a really uh, positive way, but an extremely practical way. Because both you and I have been uh, just involved in, the, in, in moving house, which is a, just such a tangible, concrete, uh, way of, of looking at your surroundings, looking at environment, looking at physical existence. And anyone who is making themselves familiar with a new place, and particularly if you have to do any repairs uh, from minor to, to more substantial, you quickly come to terms with how beautiful it is when something is level. When there is standardization, when not every outlet or screw or the size of the bathtub, you know, drain is completely novel. You know, we don't want novelty all the time. Standardization is really terrific in many ways. You think, right, Okay, I don't need, you know, 30 different nails here. Two sizes of nails will work. Um, and the wall is actually, uh, square and level, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And we, we need to get into the frame of, of appreciating where order has come from. And I think that goes back to what your original response to and in our starting point for this episode is, uh, our mutual respect for the struggling process of, of human coherence over a thousands of years, I mean that process was phenomenal. I mean how do you know not to eat that bush? you know Somebody well to. <laughs> yeah, and that was a tough you know that was hard learning, you know, and I think that that, that is a really good place to to end this segment and and to, and to to lead off to next time because I think we can then kind of tease out a little bit of an inventory of our points of appreciation, you know, for that structure, for these forms of order, and how they've emerged. Because it's the appreciation rather than the fear of or resentment of that we're kind of focusing on with coherence now as opposed to dissonance. Excellent. I love it.
0: I think that's great. Do you want to get into your segments or would you like to hear kind of what I've come up with for the win-win 0 sum game?
1: I, I think that uh, we're, uh, we're inching towards uh, the the big tool idea, uh, but we're not going to cover it off this time. I'm rather excited about your win-win. I, I think we've had a good discussion, and I, I'm kind of curious, uh, because you, you said you, you sort of jumped on that early, uh, and you've done such a great job with these challenges, so hit us up with that.
0: Okay. Well, this might be, so my initial thought ended up not being what I'm going with. So what I have here is something that needs to have the kinks worked out of it. This would be my initial brainstorming draft for a project. And you'll see what I mean when I get to it, because I don't have every aspect of this worked out, because my initial thoughts were something to the effect of pairing people off and someone can is only allowed to use their legs while someone's only allowed to use their arms to complete a task.
1: Oh, uh, I love that. Where, there, there would
0: be others where uh, you know, the entire class has to get from one end of the school gym to the other using uh, you know, uh, the the uh gymnastics mats, but you know, nobody's they have to kind of form this inchworm chain going across. That might be another one. Now, the idea that I'm really interested in that needs the kinks worked out of it a bit more would be, say you have a class of 30 people and you pair them off, so you have 15 groups. As a class, the goal would be to hit a numerical value uh, that would only be possible if at least half of those groups uh, uh half of those teams I should say work together among them right now here's where I would need help I had the idea that there is a ball inside of a box and one kid's goal would be to keep the ball inside of the box and the other kid's goal would be to place the ball in a box across the room Okay. okay, so initially they are against each other, and they can, if they want to, and if it's for the greater good, one of them can sacrifice and say, either I'm going to take the the ball out of the box and go deposit it in its home, or we'll leave it there, you can stay in, and we'll get fewer points than if we kind of work together. Now, the where the win-win would come in would be if they were somehow able to work together. And there would be a semi-complex system of rules about who could touch what and how this particular box could move. But if they could somehow find a way to get the whole thing into its home together while following these complex rules, then they would get an even bigger, a, a higher score that would add to the overall class's score. And at the end of the day, if we have a certain number that we've reached, the whole class gets I don't know pizza or something like that, um, so it needs work, right? So what is like what are the rules? Can some people can one guy only touch the box? Can one guy only touch the ball? That might be interesting, like if their if their goals and their abilities are opposed. Um, but I love this idea of of putting kids together actually with what at first appears to be an oppositional task. Where they're pitted against each other but if they're able to be creative enough they can work together to win pizza for the class so it's a bit of an unsatisfying answer because i don't have the mechanism by which we do that but i think that would ultimately be the best expression of it because zero-sum games right are initially you know there's all this stuff that's pitted as well zero sum one person wins one person loses and I, I would want that element to it, right? The combative that morphs into cooperation.
1: Well, I think that's a beautiful idea and, and it, it, it works uh, pedagogically, but I think it, it's exactly what's missing um, in the breakdown between zero-sum and win-win. It, it, there isn't that mechanism of evolution And movement of how competition and this has been uh, this is another good example of something that you and I very solidly agree on of how uh, competition and and combativeness is 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 a good thing Uh, it's a good thing at the family level between brothers and sisters it's a good thing between you know artists and and, you know curious people it's it's part of the nature of stimulation uh, how we got to a point where we, you know, we think that's a bad thing uh, is very, very weird. Uh, but I like that idea very much of of trying to find a mechanism of evolution within those two frames, because so much of the the problem with people who you know, put forward, well, it's not really a zero-sum situation, or they try to introduce a win-win situation that seems kind of syrupy and cliched and and not really, you know, nothing that anyone wants to be involved with, uh, is they don't have that dynamic, that oscillation, to use a phrase, that we uh, often return to between the two modes because that's that's what's going on with, with what you've got there. Um, I think that was a satisfying answer, Jeff. It's a very hard, um, it's very it's very hard to work that out conceptually and theoretically. But I think you've given it a good shot in practical terms, and I love the visual, physical activity. You know, because that's what was required for you know uh, for, for actually get that across in real life. But certainly with you know eight year olds. Uh, no, I, I enjoyed that. I think you could. Uh, you're you're welcome to return to that thought a bit more because I think we all need to think more about this. Uh, yeah, and
0: it, especially if the project was posited to the students initially as a competition, and they began with their own handicaps and abilities and goals, and you let it go on for about five minutes and then you and then you're able to somehow you know pull off the magic trick and say okay now using the sk- the skills that you're allowed to use you'll get double points and pizza if you I don't know why pizza is always <laughs> pizza's terrible food but you know kids love it so we understand we understand but if you're able to if you're able to use what i've just given you to actually do this together
1: you'll get you'll get pizza Okay. Okay. Well, I think that was well done. I, I enjoyed that, and I think there's there's more to think about there, and it was a difficult challenge uh, on on many different levels. So, you continue to uh, impress, and uh, I continue to enjoy them, and I think our listeners do too. Uh, do we want to? Um, this kind of my my the big tool here is thinking about arithmetic and geometric progressions uh, is, you know, they're mathematics inspired ideas, but I think they apply much more broadly. Um, Here's what I would say about it fairly quickly without trying to spend too much time on this. I started thinking about this because uh, of the meme, another day I didn't use algebra, which is enough to drive me completely insane. Because I don't think there is a day that we don't use algebra. I think people have a very strange idea of what algebra is, and they need to revisit that. But at core, algebra has to deal do with, with symbolic values and relationships where symbols are abstracted and their ways of managing very physical sort of realities. But I want to look at the, this these two different ways of dealing with progression we've talked a lot about progress in in this series overall uh, and we've interrogated the notions of progress Uh, but progression sequence and more fundamentally change change is really the issue you know if we go back to the ancient greeks they had two major questions in life. Is the world one thing or many? Mm-hmm. And is change real? Mm-hmm. Is in fact change real or is that an illusion? And if it is real, is it necessary? And can it be in any way processed and managed and predicted perhaps? Mm-hmm. People would know, I think, that an arithmetic progression is well for example one three five seven nine what's the next one?
0: One three five seven nine eleven.
1: yep okay okay so we're adding two <laughs> each time i
0: get so nervous with math questions i'm sorry
1: well <laughs> okay you know uh, uh i mean but we could we can reverse that and we can say 99 90 81 72 we get the idea sure there's a linear qualities so what what is different is a number, a variable number, but that is applied. And we can predict that out. And once you have that code, that single number, whether it's two or nine or whatever, you've got the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Very, very basic level of handling, progression, sequence, change. A geometric sequence might be, for instance, one, two, four. Eight, sixteen. Here the difference is not adding or subtracting, it's multiplying or yeah. dividing. Now, another level of geometric progression is the exponential,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we're talking about squaring or cubing. I mean, an example of a geometric math progression would be, say, 2, 4, 16 and 256, for example. I think, I think people are pretty clear on that. Now, these things are very handy in terms of looking at growth or its reverse, degradation, loss, you know, going one of two ways. If we have a species of bacteria, say we start off with 24 bacterial cells and they double in number every hour, we can use these kinds of mathematics tools to predict how much bacteria we will have in seven hours. We get A that. Lot. Okay. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. We understand that. Now my argument here though is that this kind of thinking can be applied much more broadly than just the literal mathematics frame. If we say that an arithmetic progression is linear and one-dimensional or two-dimensional, we can then say a geometric progression is dimensional, three-dimensional, perhaps four-dimensional in time. I would suggest if we really take that on board, we can see how that works as principles more largely in life everyone knows the expression if you give a man a fish he can eat for one day but if you teach him how to fish he will never be hungry again I think we've all heard something like that sure. uh, Albert Einstein said that uh, the most amazing thing uh, that he knew about was the idea of compound interest you know mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people who you know are thinking about possibly ever retiring, they're encouraged to stay around one more year because that will have an exponential effect on their total retirement. In more basic terms, I notice that when I need a haircut, it's it's very sudden. You know, I might look a little scruffy, and then one morning it's like, bam, what happened? Exponential growth, exponential. We tend generally to see dramatic change as in exponential geometric change in negative terms, because disorder is easier to see than order and coherence. I wonder, though, if we could think about what provides, what generates exponential growth in our capacity to appreciate coherence. I was just the, the, one of the most important things Mm. that we learn in life is the ability to read. I think reading uh, opens up channels of order and structure and coherence on an exponential scale that suddenly whole new channels open up to us. And tying into... uh, a more personal, psychological sense. I would suggest that there are individuals in our lives that we meet from time to time, very precious, important, uh, magical resources who are exponentially inspiring Mm
0: -hmm. and Mm
1: -hmm. creative of possibilities. Whereas everyone, I think, knows someone who is kind of an energy vampire or just a dead spot where you think, my God, I'm doing all the work. This is so linear. I'm connecting (laughs) the dots. It's just, yeah, Uh it's the next number is six in the sequence. You dumbass, you Mm -hmm. know, We, we, whether it's just someone who's very literal, very concrete, very rooted in just, almost grunting and twitching in terms of communication, or someone who is uh, just very rooted in, in strict sequencing, then we meet someone who's dimensional, who's geometric, who's exponential, and who suddenly opens up all sorts of doors when I was 17 and I'd I'd run away from home so to speak and was living in this really just derelict hotel in Los Angeles with junkies and old people who were talking to themselves and a, a hooker who was an amputee and all these strange people I chanced on a couple who uh I met he. I, I was drinking illegally at the bar that he was working at. He was kind of a <laughs> wannabe writer. They were seven years older than I was, and they'd been to uh, Pomona College. And he dropped out because he was too cool for school. But I wrote down the other day the authors that that he put in front of me, uh, that he introduced me to, and it, it's quite an extensive list. But there were twenty five major. Writers, and I would say that that education that I got from him was worth more to me over the course of my life than my Ivy League education in terms mm-hmm. of you know a, a reading list for life and an angle of of attack and enjoyment of these authors. So it was exponential. It was not just linear. You know, it was not arithmetic. It was. It was an exponential boom in my brain power and my enjoyment of, of intellect and, and the adventure of learning. And yeah. so I, I think that the key to it is not number, as in simple increase or decrease, what the beautiful, magical thing of geometric progressions, a geometric growth or its opposite, is ratio, changes in ratio. This is where the action is. And for people who are participating in our book club, I'm very excited about we'll have our next session on Saturday. One of the key things that we'll be talking about with the artist Robert Irwin, who's the focus of the book in question, is how his work changes the ratio between the viewer and the art viewed. That's where the dynamic magic energy is. It is never in number and concrete relationship. It's in magical exponential ratio changes. Ratio changes, how we interact with the world. We feel different about libraries and supermarkets and possibilities because we might have, those of us who are positive about it, might be drawing our Venn diagrams of self and environment differently. This is the focus of my new book on memory, which is a follow-up to my textbook. and But I think really a, a kind of geometric, I hope, extension of it, wanting people to draw different Venn diagrams about their psyche and the world. And I think that's kind of an ongoing theme that we've been talking about really since our first episode, don't you?
0: I absolutely do. I think that's beautiful. I think that's great. I'm gonna be thinking about that for a while, because it's setting off exponential fireworks in my brain.
1: Cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I think it's, uh, it, it, it is a magical tool and we need to talk more about it, and and, and look at examples. We certainly welcome listeners' uh, responses. You know what what has been a geometric exponential uh, experience in your life? Um, we hopefully on the inspirational spectrum, but not necessarily. I think the important thing is that this magic is is out there, and it has such an energized and higher dimensional capability than arithmetic, linear, sequential, you know, one-dimensional or two-dimensional stuff, you know? I
0: mean, isn't that so applicable to art?
1: It is. And that some people appreciate,
0: you know? I mean, when you're looking at some films or books that have been released lately, it's a real one-to-one type situation. Totally.
1: Exactly. Some of us
0: are looking for that a, a little bit more bang for our buck to use a... You know, a term there, but we're looking for a a better ratio of of return on our investment of our attention and engagement with the art itself, right? We want that. We want that geometric progression. Uh, We want to leave the. We want to close the book or roll credits on the film and have all these different uh, sort of pathways opened up and and worlds opened up. But a lot of people, you know. The same way that there are some people who are a real one-to-one type situation, maybe those people like that that kind of thing, but not me, not me. So I'm I'm thinking uh, about this art artistically. Yeah,
1: we reserve the right to leave the linear in its place. There, there is a point, you know, a place for it for sure. Uh, But if that's all people have uh, to offer us, then that's not enough. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. that's not enough and art that's on working on that level uh, and so much of it is, is you know I know that you and I absolutely agree on this um, it, it is simply one dimensional it, it, it is so functionalist it's lost any sense of larger uh, magical inexplicability you know oh, and it's reducible to uh, synopsis level that just isn't worth you know our time so mm-hmm. we will pursue more of that uh more of that next time um but for this episode my my tip runs into my dream cool we
0: get a a little bit of a an amalgam here an amalgamation
1: yeah. and it also ties into what we were just talking about i uh in in anticipation of my move i was thinking that it was really time to buy a new bed i I had inherited the, the bed I, I had, um, which I did bring with me, but I, I just exchanged it about four days ago. Um, I went bed shopping because I, I knew it, it was at least 15 years old. I I'd, I'd inherited from where I was renting originally when I came back to uh, America. And it was tired, and I, I was looking around, and so I did. and. I just got overwhelmed, as we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. about all the options and all the choices. And yet there was an underlying theme. There were so many of these beds in a box and, and you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all these brands that I noticed Memory that everyone <laughs> everyone in the ads was, was a lot younger. And they looked like they were, you know, were those mattresses really going to last Do they really have the substance? And so I I was beginning to to think, well, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I really am old school. I just have to accept maybe I want a a traditional box spring mattress, you know. So I went into one of the endless number of of, uh, franchise stores around, well, I guess they're around everywhere, but they're certainly around Vegas. And it was called Mattress Firm. And it was just because I was in staying in a motel at the time inter, you know, between the, the, the house moves. And I thought, well, I'm just going to see what's going on here. Well, there was a young guy alone. It was the salesperson, Kyle. Not a good-looking chap, necessarily. Uh, he had a bit of, of acne still. Uh, he did have a remarkable sales manner, though, that really, really impressed me. For starters, he actually listened to what I said. And he got right on to the idea that I was a little bit resentful of this uh, bed-in-a-box, new sort of millennial Gen Z sort of thing. I had just had a bad experience with uh, an Airbnb. You know, a lot of this newfangled stuff was kind of getting to me a little bit, and I was thinking, well, look, maybe I just have to accept that I am more traditional than that. And he gave me three beds to lie down on to check, you know, see how I felt. And I did end up going for a of traditional mattress. Mm-hmm. But he had the thing, his whole sales technique was after listening to me, rather than doing his spiel or putting forward his, you know, he really did have the customer service angle. He wasn't just promising that, he actually listened. But when I had given him the information, I'm a little bit more articulate maybe than, than everyone, but I ran it down. He had a physical approach using the showroom, which wasn't big, but still there were a lot of, you know, fair number of mattresses, enough to confuse me. Mm. Uh, he had a map of which ones to show good salespeople have a map in mind. I love maps. They, he had a route for me to follow. We had a goal, we had a direction. He wasn't saying, well, this is the one I want to end up with. You know, in, in like in real estate terms, oftentimes people will show, you know, say the one they really want to sell, the one they think they can sell third. No, it was a little bit more open-ended than that. But it was a good way of contrasting the options. And it was a beautiful example of dialectic. In physical terms, I don't think he would know what the term means. But it was, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, beautifully physically enacted. And I really liked him so much, I ended up spending some time talking with him as we did the deal and he does not have any college education uh he is a completely self-made guy he's only 22 years old uh he had a rough upbringing um but he has a vision for his life you know he -hmm. wants to own one of these franchises and he believes in the honor and value of that uh and i'm dealing with some young people who are they're not that young. They're old. They're as old as you are, David, and they're they're wanting careers as executive directors, and you know they still live at home. You know, yeah. Um, that kind of annoys me, um, and so I took delivery of this bed, and I thought, you know, and it, everything was perfect. You know, the the delivery guys came on time, uh, and it was a really ugly, windy day, but they didn't complain, and they. They went through the whole, you know, COVID thing coming in the house, and I said it's okay, but they said no. Look, we, we you know need to do that to, you know, fulfill the, the deal, and everything was great, and I went to sleep my first night, and you know some of these beds with names like burrito and all these crazy names and just don't you know you just think God I don't want to be eaten by my bed and I don't know if I want my you know cute 20 year old girlfriend opening the box because I don't have a cute 20 year old girlfriend and I don't want one and all that other stuff well I slept so well I don't remember my dream (laughs) <laughs> I thought it was time to have a dream sequence where there, there wasn't one because I just slept so well and I didn't wake up feeling as if I'd had my kidneys beaten by branches and I thought wow You know, out of all of that bewilderment about all of these brands and all of these claims and looking at stuff and lying on beds and well, the solution really was this guy Kyle. I was gonna say
0: Kyle's Kyle's got it together. Kyle's gonna be doing better than the executive directors in twenty years. He's gonna have three or four mattress firms. He's gonna have a nice house with a couple of jet skis and a Gang of kids, and he's going to be good.:
1: And he's going to be happy too. you know yes. I think that is really a great way to end this segment because I think it ties into uh, one of uh, yours, my our deepest uh, appreciations is there there is a sense of class, and we mean that not only in terms of what divides people, but what kind of gives people character and stature and and cool. There, you know, he was classy, and he came from a certain class, and he's fulfilling that, and damn it, the delivery was great, and I'm happy, so I'm very grateful that I wandered into uh, his showroom.